Dr. Tarina Shankar Ghosh is a computational biologist. And if that sounds a little bit abstract for the Gutology podcast, Tarina has published over 50 research papers in some of the world's most notable journals. Tarina is less interested in your symptoms, he's more interested in your data, specifically the makeup of your microbiome. If we think about it like the night sky, the more we understand the makeup of the stars, the closer we get to understanding the why behind the universe. And the microbiome, well, it's really no different. If we can understand the why behind certain health conditions, we get closer to the how we treat them. Tarina, it's great to have you here. Um, do you think understanding our microbes better could potentially transform the way we sort of treat or even prevent disease in the future? Oh, absolutely. Like the microbiome is one of like, you can call it as, a, as one of the key organs in our body. Like the microbiome is intricately linked with our, with our immune system, with our neurophysiology, with, our, um, with, with the way we digest our food. And the good thing about the microbiome is like, unlike the other organs or other, uh, unlike our own genome, for example, unlike our own genomic, genomic mecca, you can alter our microbiome. So it is a modifiable organ that plays a very critical role uh, in our well-being and, and in our well-being. So, um, just so I guess, yes, it's going to be a very critical, play a very, very critical role in the way we uh, diagnose or address or therapeutically intervene in different diseases but at the same time we still have a lot to know about the microbiome and it's a really fascinating aspect of research right now where you know in our journey to I think we all kind of like the more experts that I speak to on this kind of show you do get caught up in the excitement of what the potential is the more that we learn about the microbiome where if we were to do a sort of percentage trajectory on that journey a hundred percent is we know every single microbe we understand how they interact with each other and zero we didn't know anything 15 20 years ago where do you think we are right now on that journey of understanding uh, I would say we are at the 30% stage, but given the way things are advancing right now, technologically, with long-read sequencing, huge infrastructures in, in, in terms of computing, huge data being generated, we are at this 30% stage right now, but soon we are going to just leap forward to the 50 or 60% stage. We're seeing so much at the moment going on in the world around um, uh, computation, so machine learning. AI, right. you know, people even listening to this podcast now, you may not think too much about AI, but if you shop on Amazon, um, it's using machine learning to understand how it can get its orders to you quicker. Like it, it is really all around us right now. And particularly when we think about the advance in computing, you know, 20 years ago, it, we all had these giant PCs that were very slow. Now we've got more computational power in our iPhone than they did have on the moon landings. And the next evolution of this is going to be quantum computing, which takes the speed of computing into something that we can barely begin to kind of comprehend. Is it those things that are going to allow us to essentially crunch the data faster? Is that what's happening? Absolutely, yes. Uh, that's partly because of the huge advances in the computational uh, infrastructure as such. But a big chunk of, uh, there is another chunk that we should also not ignore is the 
huge advances advances in the in the in the way we generate the data or the volume of the data that we can generate per uh, per dollar or say per per pound or say per cent like the the per base sequencing cost is drastically reducing making microbiome sequencing more and more affordable uh, to labs around the world and at the same time we also have we also have parallel advances in the different kinds of sequencing technologies that are coming up. For example, sequencing technologies like uh, long read sequencing, Nanopore, for example, PacBio, where you can actually get longer reads or longer genomic fragments being sequenced so that you can, you can actually understand not only the species a, a given fragment is coming from or a given genomic content is coming from, you can actually go to the strain level, identify the strain level variations of the different species that are present in different kinds of microbiome habitats or different kinds of any kind of habitat, for example. So, there are, so let, there, let's just let's just break that down for a second for people listening. So we're talking about sequencing, and when we talk about sequencing, essentially what we're saying is understanding what microbes are there, and therefore right. then understanding how they. You're saying the exciting bit is then understanding not just what they are, but how do they interact with each other. Right, and how and what genes do they encode? What, what kind of pathways do they encompass? Uh, so things like that. So, it's, it's, so, so it's, it, it's not only important to identify what particular bacteria, like you said, we also need to understand what kind of function they perform or what kind of functional potential they have in a given environment. So one of the so biggest- So give us an example. Just give us a really simple example to start with that would be easy for people. Let's do, uh, human microbiome sequencing for babies to start with, right? Give yeah. us an idea of a particular bacteria, something that it does that's interesting in the body, like the, the, how that yeah, how so, it so, influences. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a very nice question, uh, Ollie. So there's one particular example of a bacteria called Bifidobacterium. So if uh, so, there was the Bifidobacterium is a typical infant-associated bacteria. Uh, so it's it's high in in the gut microbiome of babies. So, and it's beneficial because it, it helps to tune the immune system. So it's, it helps also to digest the, 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 the maternal oligosaccharides, like the milk-associated oligosaccharides. So, so, and one of the things where these specific bacteria, it behaves very differently in different conditions is, if you take the, there was a recent study where they looked into the Bifidobacterium longum species, isolated from the infants from Vishnais countries, and they compared it to the Bifidobacterium species that were present in the children of, of Bangladeshi children, for example. And they found that the Bifidobacterium and the way and the, and the, and the, sac, and the polysaccharide degrading capabilities of these two different groups of Bifidobacterium are, are different. Like, the, for, for example, the Bifidobacterium longum that is found in the Bangladeshi children, they, are, they, are, they have a unique capability to degrade fibers as well. So something that is there in the environment of these uh, of these societies, they tend to change. They tend to shape the the functional potential of a, of a particular bacteria, a bacteria that is typically tuned for degrading only milk-associated oligosaccharides. In an industrialized nation, can degrade fiber-associated polysaccharides as well. In 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 in, in typical non-industrialized. So, so 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 what you're saying that. So what you're saying is, let, taking a child from Bangladesh and a child from the UK, they actually have slightly different bifobacterium, which then influences yeah. how they actually digest certain things. And yes. the potential could be in more industrialized areas, it's a poorer yeah. quality bif... Wow. 
No, it, it, it may not be a poor quality beef. Uh, it, it's basically, the, it, it, it is how a, a microbiome is, is probably responding to the environment in a, in a given region. So the beef, so it's, it's big because uh, the industrialized nations, so for example, they have a different kind of, so the, so the children, they're exposed to a different kind of diet. For example, a nutrient-rich environment or a nutrient-rich diet with a typical Bangladeshi slum, children uh, from a typical Bangladeshi slum may not be exposed to. So they have to learn to adjust or they have to learn to program themselves to, to increase the energy harvest from the same amount of food or the same amount of nutrient sources. So actually a child that grows up in a poorer environment, let's say a slum in Bangladesh, their bacteria are adapting essentially to be more savvy in harvesting in harvesting nutrients than somebody yes. that's got a nutrient rich diet. Absolutely, yeah. Wow, that's incredible, isn't it? And and so when we when we think about that, then what it, is it? What can we take from that when we think about? children that are suffering from nutritional challenges actually would some of those bacteria be helpful for other children potentially absolutely so 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 probiotic supplementation is one like one of the things that it has been going on for individuals for all age groups including children and what we typically see is not all probiotics like typically we have probiotics that are formulated from species or strains isolated from certain geographies like Selectobacillus cirrhotas, even the bifidobacterium longum strains. So they are typically formulated from species of strains isolated industrially from probably industrialized countries. But and that is the reason, like why we are, where, when these probiotics are actually administered to children who are in, who are in like nutrient deficient settings, for example, uh, children in like Africa, South Asia, and things like that. So these probiotics may not actually work, or this may not actually be effective. So these findings actually further enforce the need for actually uh, coming up with personalized microbiome-based therapies or population-level microbiome-based therapies. So what you're saying is, is that, um, you know, when we look at things that have been rolled out, you know, at, at a countrywide level, at a population level, things like uh, folic acid supplementation, right? Yeah. Um, and that's had huge impacts. It's been really, really positive as far as like, children's success in school their cognitive ability the potential of what their iq could be when we think about it's not as simple as just giving school children in india a specific pro uh, globally a specific probiotic you might need to right. do it differently in bangladesh than you do it in seattle in america for example right the formulations have to look into the exact potential of a given strain or a given bacteria that is endemic to a given population. There is another example that I would also like to cite. So if you look into the different kind of lactobacillus-based probiotic. So we had another study we've got when I was uh, like from APC, we got another study which was published in, a, in the Gut Microbes Journal, where we looked into the lactobacillus species that were prevalent. Uh, we looked into the data that was available across the world from different kind of microbiome sequencing studies. And we're just looking into the different kind of lactobacilli that were identified or present in these gut microbiome uh, profiles that were present, that we assimilated from different kinds of data sets. And what we observed is like the typical LGGs or lactobacillus plantarum, which are the typical lactobacilli that are generally administered as probiotic, are mostly found in the westernized countries and in East Asia. 
If you look into the non-industrialized countries like Africa, for example, or South America, if you look into the tribes, if you look into the rural, uh, uh, my, the microbiome samples that were isolated, the microbiome profiles that were isolated from these, from studies focusing on these populations, it's none of these lactobacilli. It's a different kind of lactobacilli called Lactobacillus ruminis that is dominant there. And it completely dominates the microbiome in these, in these individuals. It's not any of the um, other lactobacilli. And why do you think that is? It's because, it's, it's because uh, 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 the, the, I think the straightforward answer will be that it's how the ecosystem is. Like the, it's, the microbiome is, is like an essential, an entire ecosystem. So the ecosystem defines who goes and sits there and who just simply passes out or who is simply thrown out of the population. So unless we understand the baseline community of the microbes that is there, in a given individual and how it varies from individual to individual, coming up with a universal probiotic or a universal consortia-based microbiome therapy is probably going to be difficult. Um, if if we, you know, if I came and hung out with you in New Delhi, Torini, um, uh, the chances are we'd go out, we'd eat some street food, um, uh, you'd probably be a-okay the chances of me having an upset stomach let, would probably be quite high. Um, right. Can you, uh, can you see a day where someone from the UK books a holiday to New Delhi and there's a specific probiotic that if you happen to be, if you're traveling to New Delhi, you could take that probiotic and it would decrease your chance of, um, you know, our reaction to foods... I'm assuming is to do with the makeup of our microbiome and those ability and the, and the ability yeah. to yeah so so do you see it do you see a possibility there where people could actually supplement based on the countries that they're traveling to I do see an, uh, I, yeah I told I do see there's a prospect in that where you can actually modulate your microbiome or take some food that specifically enriches for certain members of the microbiome before you move across geographies. The reason for that being that despite individual or geography specific variations, variations in the microbiome composition, we do see certain bacteria that are the core. Bacteria like Fecalibacterium, Roseburia, Ruminococcus bromide, uh, Eubacterium rectale, Roseburia intestinalis. There's some bacteria, Doria longicatina, for example. So there's different, there's a list of specific bacteria you do see them reproducibly observed across all population. It is not these probiotics, it is these bacteria. So the more resolute, and what we have seen in, 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 in many of my studies is, the more, the more abundant is this entire group as a whole in the microbiome, the less uh, uh, susceptible is your microbiome for aberrant changes in its composition. We have seen that these bacteria, they occupy, they are, they, they generally tend to go down across all diseases. We have seen that these bacteria actually respond well. These are the first responder to a beneficial diet. We had a study published in GUT where we looked into the actual modulators, uh, the modulating bacteria that determine or, or increase the host response to a beneficial material diet. And we found that these are some of the bacteria that do. So these are the central regulators. I feel that there are some bacteria which are called the central regulators of your microbiome. And if you enrich that, your microbiome tends to remain more stable and it will remain stable. So you can actually have a core set of bacteria that you can, in fact, universally use or enrich depending on your irrespective of your population. And that will probably give you a microbiome that is more resolute or more stable.
So to just explain again then, so the bacteria that are, that are beneficial to a stable microbiome, what are those bacteria that we're talking about, those specific bacteria? Just mention those again. So, so there's, there's, some, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a very consistent list of these names that you'll be, uh, if you look into any microbiome paper, you will see a very consistent list of names. These are Fecalibacterium prausnizae, Roseburia intestinalis, Roseburia inulinivorans, Eubacterium rectale, Ruminococcus bromai, Doria longicatina, Doria formis generans, uh, Roseburia hominis, Blautia obium. So there's, there's a list of these 10-12 bacteria you keep seeing coming up. And how prevalent are those bacteria? Like how, if you would take a guess, how prevalent would those be in my microbiome, the ones that you're listing there? So from what we have seen, uh, there is a there is a big uh, analysis that we are also in the process of performing where we are looking into close to 100 microbiome data sets and we're looking into the healthy uh, like all apparently healthy individuals apparently not showing any disease and we and we have looked in and we have collected these data sets from close to 100 studies and we are looking into the profile and we see that across at least more than 80% of these data sets these bacteria are prevalent like in the top 30 or 40 percent that they cumulatively account for close to 40 percent of the microbiome and they're universally prevalent in across 80 percent of the individuals 80 percent of the control individuals that list of bacteria that you've talked about the chances are most of us have those bacteria but the question is how prevalent are they in the in the in the balance of our microbiome and actually if we have them then we can influence them, essentially. So, for sure. example, there are certain things that we can do on a daily basis right now. So, 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 so you've just listed a load of bacteria that actually what we see is when people have a, a, a good proportion, a healthy portion of those bacteria, you're more resilient health-wise. This is the broad thing. Yeah, so the question right. is then, how do we make sure that we encourage more of those bacteria in our microbiome because this is something that we can control and have less of perhaps those bacteria that are linked to more uh, negative health effects and I'm, I'm really interested because I, I read one study that you were involved in around the Mediterranean diet and I'm yes. really interested to understand uh, that study around the Mediterranean diet and the impact it had on microbiomes, on microbes that we're talking about, like those specific microbes there. Yeah, so so if you look into the, that particular study, we, so essentially in that particular study, what we identified was, we identified a core, so the, uh, what we observed was that the translation of the beneficial, uh, the effect, the beneficial effect of the Mediterranean diet on the host phenotype was actually mediated by certain bacteria. So what we observed is people who adhered to the diet had an increase of certain group of bacteria and an increase and people who had an increase of this certain group of bacteria, they responded well to that. So that was the overall finding of the study. And if you look into the bacteria that actually were, which we call as a diet positive group, one of the most prevalent bacteria in the diet positive group was Fecalibacterium prausnitzae followed by Eubacterium rectale and, and I, th I guess, Blautia obium and Roseburia hominis. Three of the most, the four of these bacteria that we observed over there, that I mentioned you, so four of these members were in that group. And one of the most prevalent bacteria that responded to the Mediterranean diet was Fecalibacterium prausnizae. 
And in fact, ours was one of the first study to show that. After that, there were a couple of other studies which came up. There was a study from Hutton Harvest Group in, in from Harvard on Mediterranean diet. They also observed the same trend like Fecalibacterium and Eubacterium and Roseburia, uh, Romanococcus bromide coming up. Then uh, there was another study from uh, Danilo Arcolini's uh, uh, group in Italy. They were looking, while, while our study was focused more on the effect of Mediterranean diet on elderly patients or elderly individuals, their study was more looking into the effect of Mediterranean diet on obesity. And they also observed the same thing, Fecalibacterium, the number one responder of, of the Mediterranean diet. Followed by, I guess, they also had a similar group of Roseburia or Ruminococcus that were identified. So they, were, so if you look into these individually in, into each of the studies, you see certain common responders, and a large majority of the common responders belong to the group that I mentioned just a few few minutes back. They belong to this group of seven or eight different bacteria. And what we also observed in the med diet uh, study is that when you do a network, essentially network mm -hmm. of the microbiome co-occurrence patterns. We do see that these bacteria, they are occurring in the central positions, that these bacteria, they tend to influence the abundance of other bacteria. Or they tend to positively, uh, uh, positively influence the abundance of other bacteria that are going up. So essentially, these are the central players. They tend to make the other players go up. So essentially, it's like a forest. You put the seed in the forest and the entire forest goes up. So if the forest is, is dense, you have a lesser likelihood of other guys coming in and colonizing or, or destroying the ecosystem. So, so that's how... So, uh, so this is so interesting because we, we would have, like for the last 20 years, right, we, have, we would have read articles in magazines and newspapers about the benefits of the Mediterranean diet. And our understanding of that would have been well, certainly for me, like relatively simplistic, right? We would think like, well, you eat healthy food, you kind of are healthy. But actually what we're starting to understand now is, is the types of food that are consumed in the Mediterranean diet promote certain types of beneficial bacteria to thrive. Those bacteria that then thrive do a job of crowding out the bad bacteria. And it's actually that microbiome that you're nurturing that is creating that pro-healthy, right. like that, there's just a different way to think about it. Right, and, 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 the, and the evidence, it comes up repeatedly. Like you take any dietary intervention study that they're looking into now. In fact, we have currently, Another ongoing meta-analysis on dietary interventions for cardiometabolic health, for example. And you see this, and you, we see the same trend. Like, it is essentially one of the first responders to these kind of, uh, to a beneficial, med so we have looked at beneficial uh, with Mediterranean diet, we have looked at uh, a, a vegan diet, we have looked at typical vegetarian diet. Whatever the dietary regime is, when you have Mediterranean diet, you see certain responders coming in always. And these responders always belong to the list that I mentioned. So essentially it, it is certain components of this kind of, of the Mediterranean dietary regime that actually facilitate certain responders to come up. And when these responders come up, you have a different picture. Your, your microbiome becomes basically more, becomes more dense and more resilient. When uh, we've seen a large rise in uh, vegetarian diets, actually more recently in the last few years, we've seen a rise in paleo, keto, very uh, 
high protein, low carb, high fat diets, based on all of the research that you've done, uh, Tarini, um, what are you seeing in the trials? If you, you, you know, as far as the diet that seems to have the most positive impact on the microbiome, I would say from my findings, it should be it, it will be the Mediterranean diet. It will be wow. the Mediterranean. And diet. so, what we're talking about there is we're talking about um, uh, plenty of vegetables. Um, yes. High in things like olive oil. Olive oil, fish intake. Whole, whole whole grams and things like that. Mm, wine, plenty legumes, of wine. Yeah, yeah, legumes, wine. Yeah, absolutely. And if but actually, looking, we laugh about we laugh about wine, but actually, am I right in saying that the the polyphenols that give that yeah. really amazing color in red yeah. wine are actually very very beneficial for the microbiome? Yeah. And polyphenols, from what we have seen, uh, from uh, from uh, from what we have seen in some of our studies, is polyphenol actually target a specific group of bacteria called Roseburia. I mentioned about Roseburia and a couple of species of Roseburia sometimes back. So polyphenols, and what we typically see is these groups of bacteria like Roseburia and Fecalibacterium, they respond very well to polyphenols. They have uh, so mm. they are a very good responder. So the so polyphenol has a very key role in that regard. What are the other areas where we can get polyphenols from? What are other kind of food groups that are good for, for, for that? Um, berries, grapes, berries, and so those kind of foods. Okay, yeah, so just more wine, essentially. That sounds better than berries. Got that noted. Um, you, were, you were talking about, um, uh, so diversity is, is really, really important. I think that's something else that the Mediterranean diet represents, right? Lots of different colored foods in it. There must yeah. be something in that as well. Right. So the dietary diversity is... In, and one of the things that I would also like to highlight is... Uh, so if you look into any kind of traditional rural diet, in fact, in India, for example, if you look into the constituents like the dietary, exact dietary constituents. The, the rural diet that we have in, for example, India or South Asia is very similar in its constitution to the Mediterranean diet, except probably the wine. So, except probably the wine or probably the olive oil, but we have a lot of fish, for example. So, 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 so from traditional societies, from tradition in different societies, the traditional dietary regimes that have been adopted in each of the society, they have actually incorporated these these learnings somehow into their into their culture and these learnings essentially so be it the mediterranean be it uh, south asia be it east asia so these traditional dietary regimes all of them they have certain similar characteristics in terms of the components in indian food what what you see a lot of um uh, is is bright colors and a lot of those are influenced by the spices that kind of go into the food do you see any benefits um you know what impact does that have on indian food is that is that a good thing for the microbiome that you see i know that you see a lot of bright yellows from the turmeric you know different spices like that yeah so something like turmeric for example turmeric or cardamoms so turmeric for example has a lot of anti-inflammatory properties so, although we still don't have a proper dietary intervention study from India, but 
so we do not know which bacteria actually respond to what component of the diet but some of the some of the, the traditional ayurvedic uh, practices they actually uh, advocate the use of certain spices like turmeric or cardamom which on the long run the processes that they target actually is mediated through the microbiome so so essentially we need to investigate this aspect and there needs to be some study from india looking into the aspect of different traditional dietary regimes on the microbiome population of the individuals taking them um this is slightly off topic but i'm always interested because you um uh, were working in you're in new delhi at the moment but you were working in cork in ireland for quite some time working on some really interesting trials there you actually said that you were partial to fish and chips um uh, which uh, i'm so pleased that we 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 shared our divine dish with you um what was your take on indian food in ireland like how different is it from eating uh, uh, traditional Indian food in, in New Delhi? Um, I would say New Delhi is not exactly traditional Indian food, but if you look into the rural villages, for example, so you will get the, probably the traditional Indian food there. Uh, but yes, like the typical Indian food that is there that we gener- that people generally eat in, in, in UK or Ireland. I would not say it's a typical traditional uh, Indian food, and it's and if you look into the contents, it's very different. Like chicken tikka masala is very different in terms of if you look into its components with respect to a Mediterranean diet, right? Or say biryani is very different <laughs> if you look into the constituents. It's very different from a typical Mediterranean diet. So do we do we use um, like is there an issue around um, like when you go to a, to a, a, an Indian restaurant here? Do we use a lot of artificial things to make the color of the food? And in more traditional, is that does that come from the the spices and the and the herbs? Did you notice a difference? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, I'm not sure, but but yes. Uh, colors... We generally, in, in, in rural rural India, we generally don't use colors or it's more driven by spices, as you said. Yeah. Colors and, and those things are probably more in urbanized settings, are used more in yeah. urbanized settings and not so yeah. much. In the and it's more for the visual appeal than it is yes. for the actual taste. Yes. Of the, yeah, yes. that's interesting. Yes. Yeah. Why do we love like bright red? There's something about it. When we go to get a takeaway curry, comes out like luminous pink, and we're like, "Yes, fantastic!" Yeah. yeah. But okay, that's really that's really interesting. And um, when we talk about more uh, chronic um, inflammatory diseases, you did a really, really in some really interesting work around ulcerative colitis for people that don't know what that is. An inflammatory uh, bowel condition, really debilitating for certain people. Um, one of the things that you're working on was the impact of um, uh, FMT, fecal microbiome transplants, mm-hmm. and what that could have. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about 
that trial, what happened and the impact that it had on, on, on patients that were suffering with ulcerative colitis? Uh, I was not actually a part of uh, the, the FMT trial. But uh, so my primary work uh, in uh, for, uh, with uh, work with on ulcerative colitis was with Professor Vinita Hoja's group in Ames, New Delhi. So that was the first study that looked into uh, ulcerative colitis patients along with Crohn's disease patients. And there is another debilitating disorder called um, AACUC. It's uh, it's acute severe ulcerative colitis. It's AACUC. So that's another disorder that's, that's the severe form of ulcerative colitis. So there are three different groups of uh, strata of uh, IBD patients that we're looking on. And we're comparing their microbiome setup uh, with uh, healthy controls from around New Delhi, like non-IBD controls from around New Delhi, and uh, healthy controls up north under the Himalayas from Leh, Ladakh. So, and so there were two stratas of healthy individuals uh, individuals living in completely isolated hilly areas, individuals living around the rural setting of, uh, around the urbanized setting of Delhi, but apparently non-diseased. And then we have this three different disease status. And there was very strange observations that we did, uh, that we observed. Like, typically, the, if you look into the microbiome uh, as, a, as, a, as a community, so it's generally dominated by two major groups, a healthy microbiome. So it's a, it's a bacteroides-dominated guild or a bacteroides-dominated sub-community and a formicus-dominated sub-community. That is generally, that they are like two different uh, distinct sub-guilds of the microbiome. Uh, typically, what, and typically what happens in, a, in the westernized society is you have this, and there is this group called, uh, this bacteria called Privotella, which forms its own cluster. So there are the three dominant members, uh, three different subgroups with the microbiome, typical gut microbiome. And what we observe is typically in the in the non-industrialized countries, you have these, the Firmicutes and the Privotella group, which are higher, and the Bacteria group is lower. The in an industrialized society, in an industrialized, typical industrialized setting, you have Privotella, which is lower, and you have some of these guys, the Firmicutes and the Bacteria group, which is high. In these patients, what we observe is their microbiome the, the was primarily and then we have this, all these bad guys around these central gates which which are generally associated with disease what we observed in this in these uh, in this in this unique in the, the unique thing that we observed over here is up north the guys in lay they will have the prevotella and the firmicutes which is typically as we observe as you go into delhi you have this bacteriodesis and this group coming up prevotella decreasing and when you typically go through the different stages of disease, you have this bacteroides coming up, the firmicutes going down. And along with this bacteroides, it typically adopts an industrialized microbiome configuration. So a diseased Indian microbiome suddenly became very similar to the, to the industrialized or the UK, uh, U, uh, the European North American microbiome. So the IBD patients in India, they seem to have a microbiome that is very similar to those that are typically observed in healthy individuals in UK and and, and Europe, for example. And then suddenly this bacteria does have it went down and you had this pathobion proteobacteria hub coming up. So there was a very clearly distinct stepwise transition of the microbiome that you witnessed in this particular study. And we typically observed that the key point of transitioning from an unhealthy microbiome to a, from a healthy microbiome to an unhealthy microbiome is again this firmicutes-based group, which is again the core. This is the fecal bacterium, this firmicutes group. 
So what we're seeing is in people that people that are suffering with more inflammatory conditions, the environment of their microbiome tends to be, as far as the makeup of the bacteria, is more of the bad bacteria, less of the good bacteria, and therefore a more sort of inflammatory environment. Yes. And what the unique thing that we also observe is like for the inflammatory environment for an Indian individual is very different is actually very similar to the to the bacterial composition of the microbiome that is present in the apparently healthy individuals from the industrialized societies like like for example UK or like or US or Europe. So here we so, have so, patients who have the bacteria that is actually going up, which is a pretty pretty normal thing for anyone from the from from the Europe or or, or US. That's the bacteria that are typically high. They, they are adapted to that, that particular environment. But for this environment, this particular dynamic change is probably not adapted to the, to the setting that it's in right now. And that is probably causing the inflammation. But what does, are we saying then that a standard microbiome in India versus a standard microbiome in the UK, the Indian microbiome is a less inflammatory microbiome? Is that fair to say? Yes. Typically, rural microbiomes, if you look into different kinds of rural microbiomes, different kinds of rural societies, you take, you take for example, the, uh, the, the microbiome studies from Africa, you take the microbiome studies from Mongolia, you take the microbiome studies from Nepal, for example. There was a recent study from Justin Sonnenberg's group from, which compared the Nepalese tribes with the Hadza hunter-gatherers from Tanzania. If you look into those microbiomes, they have a high abundance of this anti-inflammatory bacteria. Uh, one 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 th- one key 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 study I'm missing out here. It's our tra- our study on Irish travelers, for example, uh, from APC. You must have heard about that. We are looking into the the microbiome composition of Irish travelers. There were like 117 Irish traveler individuals we're, we're looking at, and these individuals they have actually some of them are, are still nomadic. Some of them have. A very f- few factions are still nomadics. A majority of them have actually moved from their traveler uh, hood to actually uh, settle housing. And then we looked into these individuals across an entire gradient uh, of their, like uh, th- these individuals basically formed an entire gradient. There were individuals who were still nomadic. There were individuals who were in settled housing, but with different durations. Like some of them were like for 20 years. Some of them were just like 10 or 12 years and things like that. And what we exactly identified, observed is, if you look into their microbiome, the guys who were still leading a nomadic lifestyle, the, the travelers were still leading a nomadic lifestyle, guess what their microbiome is like? Their microbiome is very similar to what you see in South American hunter-gatherers, the Tanzanians, the Mongolians, or the Fijians, for example. And it's, why do you think that is? That has a... So, that, so there are two things here. It's... They, it's, it could be because of the diet, it could be because of a general social exposure. The more contact, the more socially uh, connected you are, the more number of social contacts you have, the better is your microbiome. That is one of the observations, key observations that we observed in this particular study. All of these guys, they lived in closed housing, uh, in, in closed, uh, in open uh, nomadic lifestyle and caravans. They lived in close-pack families. They were constantly in touch with pets. They were calling outside. The hygiene level was completely less. And these guys suddenly had a very robust microbiome that was 
uh, and that actually mm. correlates well with uh, if you look into the Irish travelers they have one of the least incidences of autoimmune disorders like IBDs for example inflammatory bowel disease or colitis for example this is this is just what i was going to get on to i was going to say to you okay so 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 what we've gone over there is the diff we're not actually saying the difference between a microbiome in india and a microbiome in the uk we're actually saying the difference between a microbiome in an industrial setting in an urban setting and a microbiome in a rural setting so even yes. here in the uk if you live in the center of london or you live out in the middle of Wales, your mic. There's going to be a difference in the microbiome, and 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 actually, then what we're saying is the the more rural, the more nomadic you, your microbiome, the less like the lower the propensity for inflammatory disease. Essentially, yes. we're starting yes. to see a correlation between the two. Yes. So, and that is one of the most fascinating area, like, again, how does this core, this core group of bacteria come up? Is it because of diet? Is it because of uh, an open exposure to the outside world? How do these bacteria uh, actually come up and how are they lost and, and why are they lost? Is it medications? Is it antibiotics? What causes the loss of this bacteria and when you adopt an industrialized lifestyle? So, so that is a that is one of the key questions that that is still that we still don't have an answer yet from the microbiome. But, uh, but the what what I seem to see speaking to so many people you know on on this podcast is the kind of rough theory of this so far seems to be somewhere along the lines of um, uh, low diversity in diet. Right, what, and we're talking now about correlating to an inflammatory microbiome so low diversity in in diet either eating the same things often or eating quite a beige diet okay not, not yeah. having a lot of fiber vegetables yeah. things like that yeah exposure to uh antibiotics right um uh high uh alcohol intake unhealthy kind of habits essentially cool. Processed and, foods. and actually, there also seems to processed foods, yeah, that beige diet. But there also seems to be, and I think this is the most interesting one, is um, low exposure to bacteria. So a, an overly hygienic yes existence. Yeah. Right. So yeah. in urban settings, you know, how many times a day are you putting antibacterial wash onto your uh, hands how many you know how many ad how many adverts do we see on the tv now saying new citrus blast kills 99.9 percent .9%. it's like well that 99.9 percent .9%, not all of that is bad stuff right, right. right? actually yeah. some of that bacteria in and around the house that dirt could be very very beneficial and 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 the extreme version of this is you know, there's a there's a there's a farmer in America, Joel. Uh, I can't remember his second name. He's a he's he's a really interesting guy because he's trying to um, reduce industrialized farming and he's trying to scale more holistic, free range farming in the United States. He's a really interesting character. Joel Salinger, maybe is his name. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a great clip of him walking out of his farmhouse in the morning. And the first thing that he does is he walks down into the paddock of his field. He leans into the cow 
trough where the, 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 the animals drink their water from and he, he drinks out of the trough. Okay, and um, his theory, he says he's not been sick in like 20 years. Right. And his theory is that by uh, exposing himself to the bacteria that that the animals are drinking out of, not washing his hands, things like that, has bolstered his microbiome. And look, that's a very extreme example. But actually what we're seeing is, is that, look, you know, even in Amish communities, a lower prevalence of yeah, acid, yeah, actually going to come for that know, compared yeah, um, to people living in... Yes, Hutterites and Amish. Hutterites and Amish, they all live a similar lifestyle. But if you look into the Amish and the Hutterites, you see... So just explain Hutterites, just explain who... Just explain who the Hatterites are, because people, I think, understand Amish, but this is in, in America. Just just give a bit of background on them. Uh, I think both Hatterites and Amish, they, they are essentially isolated communities in the, in, 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 in Americas, right? And Hatterites, I guess, have, uh, they have, they are more, is like, uh, they are more rural. And Amish are, uh, and Amish are probably the ones who, who are more isolated, like, the the hutterites they they uh, they are actually uh, uh, they are more inclined towards they have a more proximity to uh, animals or they live in a more rural setting and hutterites are probably more settled and based on that and that actually correlates with the incidence of inflammatory bile disease or asthma for example in these two communities and I think that's an interesting one because when you know a lot of people listening to this podcast particularly will be thinking about not just their own health but what they want to pass on to their children, right? And there seems to be more and more evidence now that actually exposing your children to uh, bacteria may well actually be beneficial. So that idea of... Um, I think actually part of the study with the Amish communities, they found that it was the level of dust in the house that contributed to uh, uh, lower rates of asthma. Yeah, yeah. so it's, I think it's the Amish. So the Amish are more closer to uh, animals, so they are more they adopt a more rural kind of living, and heart rates are more hygienic, and that's and that's what like there were a four times lesser incidence of asthma. In Amish, and it correlated well with the dust levels in the Amish households. So actually, you know, things that we can take away from that, having pets in the home potentially can be really, really beneficial. And maybe not spraying bleach on absolutely everything and hoovering all the time. It could actually be detrimental to the, to the makeup of our microbiomes. Yeah. And how does it have an effect? The mechanistics of it is still unknown. So we need to do studies like looking into the transfer of microbes, like take households, look into the sharing of microbes across individuals, account for factors, and look into uh, like grade microbes based on the based on the extent to which they're shared around a social network, and then go about identifying the genes or the probably the pathways or the or probably the secreted proteins that might be responsible for it identify the characteristics of the species based on by correlating that with the way uh, with the expanse in which they they move around a social network or the spread on a social network um, we talk a lot about you know disease diet energy things like that one thing that we don't really think too much about is uh, the impact of the microbiome on how we age 
you know, yes. on how on, uh, and I think that's a particularly interesting area. You know, we 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 see a lot of adverts about putting serum on your face uh, to to slow aging, but how what how you know what are we starting to learn about how the microbiome could potentially influence the way that we age? So aging, like uh, that's that's one that's one of my favorite areas. So. So microbiome with aging, so it's a very intricate link. Uh, the microbiome changes as we age because of changes in your physiology. There is a physiological change. If you look in, if you know, uh, if you look into the nine hallmarks of aging, there's some changes in the in in the in the physiological uh, in our physiological setup as we age. So this physiological setup causes a change in the microbiome. And the microbiome also changes in a certain manner that can actually have a link back onto the physiology. And if you look into the recently added hallmarks of aging, microbiome is actually one of them. Earlier, the nine hallmarks, it didn't have microbiome. Now, right now, microbiome is, is one of the hallmarks of aging, like dysbiosis of the microbiota. And it is one of the hallmarks that I would say it probably interacts with almost all the other hallmarks of aging. So microbiome is, is one of the key... It's one of the most fascinating aspects of aging. Like you, and one of the key aspects of aging is that the changes of the microbiome with aging does not only overlap with microbiome uh, changes in disease. So there is some overlap between microbiome changes in aging and microbiome changes in disease. But aging also has its own changes with respect to a healthy microbiome. So if you look into a healthy, a healthy individual, a younger individual like around 50 or 60 years of age, or another individual around 70 or 80 years of age. If you look into the health status, not all the microbiota is actually similar. So there is a similarity, like there are some bacteria which tend to be lost in with age, fine. But there are other bacteria which take their place, like bacteria like Ackermansia mucinifila, uh, Christensenella, okay, and Ocilibacter, Odoribacter, Bianciella. So there are some bacteria which, and there are other bacteria which go down, like I'm, I mentioned about the group of Fecalibacterium, Roseburia, and things like that, right? So these bacteria, they tend to go down with age, but they are generally in a healthy aging trajectory. They're replaced by these other bacteria, Ackermansia, Christensenella, which actually tend to re uh, replace them. The reason for that is they have typical metabolic functionalities that might help them to better adapt or provide a better survival or a, like I say, a better ability up to the host to age slow. For example, Ackermansia has a lot of good effects like if you look into some of the recent study on progeria for example or type 2 diabetes or in fact like uh, uh, atherosclerosis acromancia has multiple beneficial aspects beneficial properties like it can regulate beta cells facilitating insulin uh, production and regulating type 2 diabetes it produces a lot of uh, bile acid bile acids primary and secondary bile acids that are actually associated with reduction uh, in the way cells age like for example in, in cases like progeria acromancia also produces something called as acetate that actually cross feed these central players like i mentioned the the firmicutes like the the fecalibacterium the roseburia which then produce another metabolite called as uh, butyrate so it it has a typical setup which has a typical beneficial arm that actually modulate that helps to make, maintain again a resolute micro, a micro, uh, a microbial ecosystem. The other bacteria like Odoribacter, Bansiella, which again secrete specific bile acids that again facilitate cell aging and or like or like uh, what do you call this? They delay cell aging. 
and then they and then they help and this is typically observed in centenarians like there are two different groups of bacteria odoribacter and banciella they are observed to be especially high because they produce certain amount of bile acids that delay aging so the reason why bile acids would be good does that mean that actually those older people are digesting their food better is uh, that the theory they i think it has something to do with uh, the inherent physiology of of the cells uh for example uh bile acids they tend to modulate there's something called as a farnesyl x receptor and bile acids, and they they are associated with say i think i think lipid, lipid metabolism for example so there are some aspects of bile acids that are that are essential to retain lipid metabolism or cholesterol metabolism that are actually helpful on the long run to retain a a slow or a delayed aging trajectory so we could see then certain probiotics uh, out there that are specifically designed to promote healthy aging one day yeah in fact probiotics based on acromancy are already out there are some of the some clinical trials that have actually administered acromancia for for diabetic patient as well as for uh, as well as there's a mouse studies which have administered acromancia for progeria and some of the studies are already out there so this there could be a time time soon when these bacteria might when trials like that could be or like probiotics like that could soon be in the market driven by a species like acromancia besides that aging another thing that uh, has come up is again this list of bacteria that you mentioned if you have to have a delayed aging you still want need to maintain this core bacteria that i mentioned this fecalibacterium rosewillium so there were a lot of confusion previously like whether these bacteria are actually necessary or not but from repeated studies on large chinese populations we still see that the delayed reduction of these core bacteria is actually associated with delayed onset of aging so it is a delayed reduction of these center members that i mentioned and a gradual increase of this bacterial group called this formed by this acromancia christiansenella which actually leads to a healthy aging trajectory on the other hand if the center members they go down and you have this bacteroides and this pathobiont cluster coming up you tend to go on a unhealthy aging trajectory and that's where you age faster and this is one of the most consistent things that we have observed again like people who are typical like frail individuals like there's been a lot of studies including the elder med study from ireland which i was a part of and there were a few other studies from china which have looked into the association of bacterial populations with frailty bacterial populations with cognitive decline and one of the most consistent signature is an increase of certain members of bacteroides parabacteroides and a group of clostridia called uh, called the pathobiont clostridium as we refer to them there are again four or five species clostridium asparagiform clostridium bolte clostridium citrone clostridium uh, uh, clostridium ramosum and there is another bacteria called clostridium hathwi there is another bacteria ruminococcus nevus so this is the, the flavonifractor flauti igorthla lenta so these nine like i mentioned there are the good 10 or 12 so these are the bad nine so the entire microbiome is, is essentially split up between these two, two big groups so you have to prevent you have to uh, maintain this good group and you have to prevent these bad groups from coming up so whenever these groups go up there is the most consistent um, associated whenever these groups go up you have frailty you have cognitive decline and you have this multi system failure that comes up 
and functionally also if you look into the metabolite production capabilities of these guys these bad guys trimethylamine uh, let me tell you what they produce tend to produce trimethylamine and oxide again associated with atherosclerosis or atherosclerotic risk phenylacetylamine again cardiovascular diseases uh, paracrisol is uh, again a, a, a toxin a renal toxin uh, there is another group of uh, genotoxic compounds called indolimines so which have been recently shown in a science paper that they don't tend to so these bacteria they are found in mostly ibd and cancer patients and then they do, they turn they tend to do genotoxin they like genomic damage or like genome or like uh, dna damage so these group of bacteria they have certain functionalities which come up and when they come up and they come up as a group they come up as a consortial group and when they come up they promote these multiple system failures so aging I've, as we know till now is essentially driven by three specific group of bacteria we have the loss of the score when it actually goes up we have uh, a, a faster aging trajectory you age faster you age unhealthily there is, is there is a second group which is the pathobiont or the bad guys group which grow uh, which, which if it goes up you again have a bad phenotype or you have unhealthy aging to prevent this unhealthy aging as the code decreases you need to have a third group which is the modulating group which tends to go up rather than this bad group so if this bad group goes up you have faster aging you age faster or you have a you age in a bad manner but if you if the, if the code goes up goes down slowly and slightly and along with that you have this acromantia group coming up you tend to go on a healthy trajectory or a healthy aging trajectory so so it's a very complex process so so what's so in so that sort of ties everything that we've spoken about today really that idea that um uh this group of positive bacteria that we all have that if nurtured keeps the bad bacteria at bay and things that can influence that are the way that we have our environment not being overly hygienic eating a mediterranean diet let's say and if we're able to sustain that makeup of that healthy bacteria over you know dominating the negative bacteria later into our lives there is a reduced chance potentially of inflammatory conditions and disease and a propensity maybe to live to an older age essentially right absolutely right yeah yeah so essentially yeah that that's what so we have like this inter entire ecosystem we have the good guys and the peripheral bad guys and within that we have these intermediate guys the essential objective is to prevent these bad guys and enrich these good guys and you can enrich these good guys in a lot of different ways which you mentioned right now diet uh, a, a lot less hygiene uh, uh, like uh, uh, like less of processed food and less of alcohol for example and things like that so which are uh, less of antibiotics which actually prevents these good guys which actually promotes these good guys and prevent these bad guys on the other hand if you have a an unhealthy lifestyle and a very uh, you have these bad guys coming up and when the bad guys coming up they come up together they generally tend to come up together and when they come up together they they actually target multiple systems of your body and of your physiology well i think there is something actually quite empowering about hearing all of this because what we're hearing is you know we can control this you know we do have control over our microbiome and that all comes down to 
you know, essentially what we what we put in our mouths, what we put on our body, um, and um, the impact that that can have on our overall health. Um, it makes me incredibly pleased, Tarini, that there are people like you in the world putting so much time and brain power into this to really understand. It's one thing for us to make these kind of broad connections between things, but it's people like you who actually go in and do the science to prove those connections that will have the dramatic impact on how we treat disease of the future and prevent it essentially. So I think that's that's really exciting and I'm glad there's there's people like you out there doing this this work. Thank you, Oli. Thank you, Oli. It was very nice. <laughs> nice listening to that from you. Yeah, we are we we are still not I would say we are still uh, exploring yet. We are still looking into it, but we we have certain things emerging, we are seeing certain things and there's some clearer patterns which are gradually coming up as and it's, it's a full learning process. There's still a lot of mysteries, but there is definitely a pattern that, that is emerging that uh, that doesn't say that microbiome is all noise or microbiome is all nothing. Microbiome is still something and, and that is something that we can actually exploit a lot to improve our health. Tarini, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Ali. <laughs>